Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is found on page 14 in your pew Bibles. I'll be reading Genesis 19, verses 15 through 29. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of your help this morning. This is a heavy word that comes to us, and yet we know that we need it. We believe that we need it. Help our unbelief. Help me as I preach. Help your people as they listen. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you are inviting someone to church, to our church, I wonder what phrases you use to winsomely describe it. You might say, you know, our church is a really encouraging church. You're going to be encouraged if you come to this church. Or maybe you'd say, our church is a very loving church. It's a, it's a great place for you to find community. Or maybe you'd say, our church is a very helpful church. You're going to be helped here by the preaching and teaching of God's word. Those are all good things. I hope you say those things about our church. I would guess that one of the things that you do not put on your top ten list of things is this. Our church is a fire and brimstone church. That's not a very winsome phrase. And that's because we have an aversion to any imagery 
even if it's explicitly biblical imagery that conveys the wrath of God. Our society thinks of the wrath of God as a joke or as a fable or some harmful psychological projection of ours. And even in our church community, we can be reticent at times to speak about the wrath of God. Yet despite our squeamishness and our embarrassment, there are few things more clearly taught in the Bible than that God is a just judge and that he will pour out his wrath at the end of this age. Our text today, from which the phrase fire and brimstone comes, will again make that very clear. And because that is true, regardless of how we feel about it, the question that must be asked is, what do we do about the fact that the wrath of God is coming? Does it look like your life is heading away from the wrath of God or hurtling towards it? Well, let's go to Genesis 18 and let's get help finding out. We're in Genesis chapter 18 today. We're starting right in the middle of the chapter, verse 16. Now last week, if you've been with us, you know that we saw the Lord once again reiterate his mighty saving promises to Abraham. The Lord gave Abraham a hopeful sign, the sign of circumcision, and promised him that his son Isaac would be born to Sarah in about a year. All of this is signaling to us who are, who are working our way through the book of Genesis that the central promise of the book is moving forward. The Lord will send a seed to undo the destruction of sin. And it's going to happen through the Lord's unique covenantal relationship with Abraham. And the uniqueness of Abraham's relationship to the Lord continues to be spelled out in the context of judgment today. We pick up immediately after the Lord has announced the birth of Isaac. You'll remember, perhaps, that the Lord appeared to Abraham in a group of three visitors. He appeared to them in what appeared to be angelic messengers. Now, this same group prepares to investigate, to go down and investigate the wickedness of the city of Sodom. And because Abraham has a unique role in God's purpose, the Lord decides to inform Abraham of what's about to happen. Look with me at verses 16 to 19. Then the men, this is the messengers from the Lord, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So, so as the messengers prepare to go to Sodom, we're given a window into the Lord's decision to tell Abraham what's going to happen. Lord, the, the Lord of all creation, the one who created everything, he's under no obligation to tell anyone anything, right? But he decides to include this lowly, sojourning man in his plans. Why? Look again at verse 19. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So the Lord says, Abraham has a responsibility to, to live righteously before me. Craig helped us see that last week. 
being in this special covenant relationship that Abraham has means that he's supposed to walk blamelessly before the Lord. He's supposed to walk righteously before the Lord and teach his family to do likewise. So the Lord says, if Abraham is going to be that kind of person, if he's going to be a fourth teller of justice to his family, then I'm going to give him a front row seat for how I deal with wickedness. So, so what is the Lord going to do in Sodom? Look at verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So there's been an outcry against Sodom that has reached up to God. This is, this is reminiscent of earlier in the story of Genesis when, when the blood of Abel cries out from the ground because his brother has killed him. Now the wickedness of Sodom is, as it were, crying out from earth to heaven. But note that the Lord, the judge of all the earth, is not hasty. He makes an investigation into Sodom's wickedness. Now, don't lose your way here. Of course, God is omniscient. He knows exactly what's happening in Sodom. But he investigates as an opportunity for repentance and as a public confirmation of his justice. Is this not what he did with Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? God comes, and what does he do? He, he walks and he says, where are you? Same thing with Cain. He says, where is Abel your brother? Or at the Tower of Babel, it says that he comes down to see the tower. Because contrary to popular betrayals of God, he doesn't just fly off the handle in anger. He is slow to anger. But as we're about to see, his wrath against Sodom is going to be confirmed by two witnesses. But before we see that confirmation, look at Abraham's reaction, beginning in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now before we keep reading this interaction, just pause to understand what Abraham's doing here. Having been informed of the Lord's intentions to investigate Sodom for the purpose of judgment, Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of the righteous people in the city. And why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Well, you might recall that the last time we saw Abraham's nephew Lot, he was living in Sodom. You remember how Abraham rallied an army to go rescue Lot when he, along with all the inhabitants of Sodom, had been captured by the Canaanite king, Keterlaomer, back in Genesis 14. That name tends to stick in the brain. Abraham acted like a king, and he went and he rescued Lot. Now Lot is under threat again, but this time from something more deadly, the wrath of God. And so now Abraham is seeking to rescue his righteous nephew by interceding as a, as a kind of priest. He's speaking to God on behalf of man. But more than just Lot, Abraham's concern is for the Lord's own righteousness. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
So Abraham doesn't want God's righteous character be, to be impugned because the righteous per- perish alongside the wicked. So beginning with just 50 persons, Abraham humbly dialogues with the Lord so that the Lord's just intentions and purposes will be revealed. Look at verse uh, 27 and following. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy, destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So every time Abraham appeals to God's righteousness, the Lord assures him he will indeed do right. Abraham can be assured that God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And so Abraham Abraham returns to his place. God will do what is right. But now the question is, what will the Lord's investigation of Sodom reveal? What will he find? Look at the beginning of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So the visit of these angels to Sodom begins very similarly to the way their visit to Abraham began in the previous chapter, really in chapter 17. Like Abraham, Lot bows down to his guests. He invites them in. He makes a feast for them. This treatment of the messengers of the Lord is undoubtedly part of why Lot is called righteous in 1 Peter. But something seems amiss when we see Lot's strong insistence. He strongly presses them that they not stay overnight in the town square. And we see why, beginning in verse 4. Let's keep reading. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Now, this is not a hard scene to understand. But I want to spell it out in all its unsavory details 
with painful clarity because then with that clarity, we can start to address some of the elephants in the room. So a mob consisting of men, young and old, surround Lot's house, and they demand that he send out his visitors. Why? Because they want to have homosexual relations with them. That's what they mean by that we may know them. They're not asking to get acquainted with them. We know that because in verse 7, Lot calls their actions wicked. It's hardly wicked to greet new guests. And their sexual intentions are also made clear by Lot's cowardly offering of his two daughters, who he says in verse 8, have not known any man. The idea is that they are virgins. They have not known any man sexually. Knowing in verse 5 and verse 8 are the same thing. Now, Lot's actions in offering up his daughters is indefensible. But in the story, it serves to highlight the depth of the depravity of Sodom. The men of the city will not be satisfied with ordinary sexual immorality. Their immorality is of unnatural desire. That's what they're seeking. And so Lot's offer only enrages them. They can't abide a sojourner lecturing them on morality. In fact, they tell Lot they will deal worse with him than with his guests, which indicates that this mob not only wants to engage these visitors sexually, but they intend to do so violently. Lot is spared from them only because the angels pull him inside and blind the mob. And in another stunning revelation of their wickedness, it says the whole group, after having been blinded, exhaust themselves trying to find their way into Lot's house. Now, at this point in the text, the purpose of this scene is to confirm, yeah, Sodom is a wicked place. All the men of the town have been given over to sexual perversion from the greatest to the least. So the outcry against them is legitimate. And we can move on from there to what happens next, except that given the time in which we live... I need to say more. Because this text assumes that you know that homosexuality is a sign of great wickedness, of casting off God's authority. But the problem is that the cultural air we, we live and breathe not only denies that homosexuality is an evil, but celebrates it as a positive good. And I think worse, there's an increasing number of so-called evangelical Christian leaders and scholars who are wobbling on this issue. And they will point to this text in Genesis 19 and say, what's wicked here is not the homosexuality, but the practice of it. It's just that these men are violent and their actions are non-consensual. That's what's being condemned by the mob. So this, this text does not in any way condemn homosexuality. And as one of your shepherds, I want to warn you and to protect you from that kind of foolish thinking that's totally untethered from the biblical worldview. So we have to do some work here. We have to address the sin of homosexuality. And to begin to do so first, we we just have to think back to the first pages of Genesis. We just have to think back to the first pages of Genesis. It's foundational to see that the creation narrative itself renders homosexuality as an affront to God's good design. Remember that in the beginning, God made man and woman in his image and blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
It was God's good and happy mission for man and woman to come together to fulfill this glorious mission, to flood the earth with his image bearers. And that mission is only possible with man and woman together. But because they rebelled, the Lord pronounced judgment on them. And he told them that their task would now be much more difficult because of the relational difficulties. Do you remember this? Between men and women. And homosexuality is perhaps one of the most profound examples of how sin has warped these relationships. Rather than sacrifice and submission inherent to the husband-wife relationship, homosexuality brings together two people of the same sex in an intentionally fruitless union that is obviously contrary to the very way God has designed our bodies. Moreover, we know that marriage was intended from the beginning as a type of the relationship between Christ and his people, the church. Do you remember that from Genesis 2? Adam goes to sleep in a death-like sleep, and his body is, is sacrificed for the creation of his bride. He's raised up to marry her and rejoice over her. And that prophetic picture, which God has woven into the creation, is distorted. It's destroyed by same-sex relationships. In its place, you have two men, two heads, with no one to, to lead and no helper fit for them. Or two women, two helpers who are not fit for one another. So do you see how the creation account itself sets you up to see that homosexuality is opposed to the Lord's good authority and design? You don't need a big red sign in Genesis 19 telling you that this is wicked. The first chapters of Genesis give you all the data that you need. The rest of the Bible is likewise clear on this. On your outline, I've given you a number of texts, including Judges 19. We won't go there. But a nearly identical story happens in Judges 19 as what happens here in Sodom, in the, in the town of Gibeah. There again, a gang of men demands to have a visiting man for sexual purposes. It's a nasty account. And it's the conclusion, it's, it's the concluding episode in the book of Judges. Why? Because it demonstrates just how profoundly wicked Israel had become without a king. There was widespread homosexual practice, just like in Sodom. And it's the same thing in the New Testament. When Paul looks to condemn the Gentile world in Romans 1, when he wants to show how far humanity has gone in rejecting God, he picks homosexuality as the highlighted sin. That's not random. Humanity rejects God the creator. So God gives them over to desires that are so bent inward, they dishonor their bodies and actually prefer themselves, men with men, women with women. So again, I say the Bible is clear that homosexuality, consensual or otherwise, is a sin as a rejection of the Lord's good authority and his good design. So therefore, to talk about loving homosexual relations is a contradiction in terms. What defies God is not loving, however loudly people shout otherwise. And woe to us if we wobble on this and call good what God calls evil. Now, please listen to me. If you're someone here today who struggles with same-sex desires, or you identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, I know I've just spent the last couple minutes saying to you that your desires 
are evil. But I'm not saying that to you so that you'll be condemned. It's so that you might experience the mercy of God in Christ. This room is filled with people who were once characterized by desires that God calls evil. You are surrounded by people who once rightly could be called liars, cheaters, adulterers, thieves, bitter people, angry people. You're surrounded by those kinds of people. We are not better than you. But God has saved us. He is transforming us. And he can do the same for you. And I'm saying to you that the path for forgiveness and the mercy of God is not to deny your sin or to celebrate it, but to confess it to God and find forgiveness in Christ. And you're going to hear more about that mercy. You're going to hear more about that forgiveness in this message. So I hope you keep listening. Now back to the text, which I want to remind you is not actually primarily about homosexuality. The scene with the men of Sodom, serves to, it, it, it functions to confirm that the city is wicked. So we know now, the judge of all the earth will be right in pouring out his wrath upon them. Let's look to see what happens next. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So it, it turns out there are not ten righteous people in the city. And so it will be destroyed. But Abraham's intercession was not in vain, for the Lord is going to rescue Lot and his family. The angels tell him to get his family out of the city. He's unsuccessful with his future sons-in-law, who thinks God's wrath is a joke. I wonder if some of you also think that God's wrath is a joke. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now, this is remarkable. Despite the angels' warning, Lot is dragging his feet. He's still there the next morning. So the angels have to grab them by the hand and pull them out. This is a severe mercy from the Lord. It's like what you have to do with your little children when they stand and gawk in the street, right? The Lord grabs them and pulls them out. And the Lord's long-suffering, patient demeanor to Lot and his family continues. Look at verse 17. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was Zoar. So while the angel is urging them out, Lot requests that he go to a nearby city. 
So despite Lot's hesitancy and bargaining, we see the Lord remaining faithful to what he told Abraham. He will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. So the Lord grants this request, even saying in verse 22 that he will delay until Lot arrives in the city. So Lot arrives. He arrives in Zoar. Let's see what happens next. Verse 23. The sun had arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The description of the judgment is actually quite brief, but it's, it's cataclysmic. The Lord rains fire and sulfur from heaven or fire and brimstone. It's not totally clear what exactly that is that he's raining, but it, it is clear what it means. This, this raining of judgment harkens back to the flood, right? When God opened the storehouses of heaven and rained his wrath down on the earth, it's happening here. And the effect is also similar to the flood. It says, all the cities, all the valley, all the inhabitants, and all the plants, the things that come up from the ground, are gone. It's as though the Lord of creation is, is decreating this section of the world because of its wickedness. And we find out, shockingly, that Lot's wife was among those wicked inhabitants. The angel told them in verse 17 not to look back or stop, but that's exactly what Lot's wife does. And this, I believe, is far more than just sort of a casual glance over the shoulder. The idea is that she's, she's gazing back. She's longing for the city of wickedness. She's identifying with it. And so she participates in its fate. She's, she's turned to salt. Salt is an element associated with death and barrenness. Think of the, the salt sea, the dead sea. So she perishes for turning back. Oh, what a powerful reminder this would have been for the Israelites receiving this as they're coming out of Egypt. Don't look back for longing for your days in Egypt. Don't look back for the place God rescued you from. That first generation found out if that, that if you linger and long for your slavery in Egypt, you will not enter the land, but you'll die on the way. It's exactly what happens to Lot's wife. And at the same time that this judgment is being poured out, we're also reminded of God's salvation. Look at verse 27. We're back with Abraham. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So, so this story ends where it began, returning to Abraham, who sees that the Lord has indeed poured out his wrath on Sodom. But verse 28 tells us that God brought salvation for Lot because God remembered Abraham. Because of Abraham's intercession for the righteous, his nephew Lot was spared. The Lord mercifully pulled him out of the fire by his hand. And so the judge of all the earth has done rightly, both in judgment and in salvation. And that puts a nice bow on the Sodom story. But there's an unsavory epilogue that concludes the story of Lot in the book of Genesis. Let's read it, beginning in verse 30. 
Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. As with the story of Sodom, the details are not hard to understand. They're just nasty. Lot leaves the city of Zoar. He heads for the caves. His daughters become concerned they'll never marry, and therefore they'll never have children which is a fine concern, but the method that they choose is perverse. It, it has its origins in Sodom. They get their father drunk and sleep with him, and thus they become pregnant by him. The two daughters give birth to two sons who become two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And we see that, that again, this, this story kind of rhymes with the story of the flood and with Noah. Noah was a righteous man, saved out of judgment, and you'll remember that he also gets drunk, and one of his sons exposes nakedness, and the result is that his son, uh, Noah's son's son, Canaan, is cursed. Now here, Lot's grandsons aren't cursed, but any Israelite would immediately know that the Moabites and the Ammonites were not good guys. They were perennial enemies of Israel. They were seed of the serpent. The women of Moab in particular would become a snare to the men of Israel in the book of Numbers. And this text gives the backstory. The mothers of Moab and Ammon were removed from wicked Sodom. But the wickedness of Sodom had not been removed from them. Again, this is a warning to the Israelites first reading this because they're being warned not to yoke themselves with the Moabites and the Ammonites. To to partner with them was to partner with the wickedness of Sodom. So flee from that kind of immorality and flee from the wrath that comes because of it. So that's our text. Now all of that... What does that have to do with us? What's the message for us? It's that we too must flee from the wrath of God that is coming because of worldliness. Flee from the fiery wrath to come. That's what we do when we realize the wrath of God is coming. That's what we ought to do. We ought to flee from it. And I say that because the judgment of God on Sodom is meant to point past itself prophetically to a far greater judgment. Even as we saw how how the outpouring of wrath here echoes Noah's flood, the rest of the Bible often, time and time again, looks back to this fiery judgment on Sodom and says that's a small foretaste of the tsunami that's coming at the end of the age. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. He says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. 
But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Sodom becomes a type of the whole world in its wicked opposition to God. And the wrath of God that he will bring against its inhabitants will be like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The difference is that at the final judgment, it will be far more intense than what we read in Genesis. The judgment of Sodom seems tame compared to what Jesus himself declares will come upon all people who persist in rejecting him. The fires of Sodom, they fell in a day. But the lake of fire, Jesus, meek and mild, describes it this way. It's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The torments of hell, the lake of fire, unlike the torments of Sodom, are everlasting. Listen to Revelation, which borrows the imagery of Sodom to describe the fate of those who reject God. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its beast. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. So what do you do? You must flee this wrath to come. You've got to escape this wrath. And you must do this by embracing the intercessor that God has given you, one who's greater than Abraham, Jesus Christ. Jesus pleads for mercy to the just judge. Jesus appeals for their rescue from the wrath of God. And Jesus, as an intercessor, is heard. It's not because the judge of all the earth is willing to do wrong. It's not because the judge of all the earth is willing to take all that's wrong, all the sin and wickedness that's in us, and sweep it under the rug, under a cosmic rug of forgetfulness. No, the judge of all the earth will do justly. And he has done justly because he has counted against his son the wickedness of his people. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice to be received by faith. Jesus died as a sinner. He received in his body on the cross the outpouring of God's fiery wrath against him. He was the only true righteous one, the only true righteous one on the earth, yet he drank to its dregs the cup of the Lord's fiery wrath. And he was raised so that the judge of all the earth could justly rescue sinners from his own wrath. And that means through Jesus, this just God is inviting everyone everywhere to repent of their sins, to let go of their worldliness and their godlessness and to come to him and be saved.
If you, if you renounce the world, if you renounce your sin and come to Jesus today, you will be saved. Your, your rebellion against God, whether you believe it or not, is great. You may think I'm joking. They thought Lot was joking. But the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. And its horrors will far outweigh what we see here in Sodom. Flee from it. It may well be today that the Lord Jesus rolls back the heavens like a scroll and he comes with his mighty angels, the Bible says, to inflict vengeance on those who do not know him, who have rejected him. That may well be today. So if you don't know Christ, ask him now to show you the severe mercy that he showed to Lot. Ask him to reach down and lay hold of your heart and pull you up out of your sins to see that the intercessor he's provided is glorious and good. Ask him to wake you up and to show you mercy. You can do that. You must do that now. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we too must go on embracing Christ as our intercessor. Do not think for a moment that you have hope in any other refuge from God's wrath. Let this vision of the coming wrath drive your heart out in thankfulness and praise to the one who receives sinners and, and justly worked to rescue you, to shelter you from judgment. Keep embracing Christ as God's true final intercessor. But brothers and sisters... We must also go on fleeing the wrath to come by repenting of the worldliness in our lives that compels God's wrath. What do I mean by that? I mean that it is possible to live harboring some of the things in your heart that bring the wrath of God. There can still be longings in your heart for Sodom, worldly desires that must be killed. You are no longer a child of wrath, but there are things in your life that still belong to your former life in the family of wrath. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5. Just listen. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you hear that? Covetousness, filthy, foolish talk, crude joking, sexual immorality. These are things which bring the wrath of God, and so they must not be even named among the people of God. They are wrath-inducing. And so, so everywhere you find these worldly remnants, the vestiges of your former life in the city of destruction, you must cut them out. The Apostle John says the same thing with different categories in 1 John 2. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Because we're going to spend just a little bit of time here. 
First John's at the very end of your Bible. You hit Revelation, go back just a, a few books past Jude, Third John, Second John, First John. First John chapter two, verse fifteen. John says much the same thing as Paul. He says, "Do not love the world or the things in the world." If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here again, John says, do not love the world. Its love, its desires are contrary to the love of the Father. And the world and its desires are passing away like Sodom. They belong to who you were, not not who you are. And more than that, God warns us through this text that if we persist in coddling the desires of our former life, we will prove to have rejected his merciful rescue. Instead, we will be like Lot's wife. She She was pulled out of the city of destruction. She was set on the path to life. And what did she do? She turned back. And she set her gaze longingly at her former life. Dear brothers and sisters, you must not follow that way. It leads down to the pit. It leads to destruction. And that means we must be dead earnest about repentance. You must be zealous by the Spirit's help to kill the sins of your former life, lest you find them leading you by the hand back to the fires of hell. So where do you need to repent of wrath-causing worldliness? I hope you still have 1 John open in front of you because I think the categories that he gives us here are extremely helpful for drilling down to where you might be coddling Sodom. Let's look at each of them in turn. He warns against the lust of the flesh. This covers all kinds of inordinate, unlawful appetites including sinful desires for food and for comfort and especially sexual immorality. Now, I feel like in a sermon like this, I have to say sex is a good gift from God. But Paul said that sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among us. So we shouldn't even let it have a foothold in our heart. But before I I talk about that, about not even having a foothold in our hearts, I would venture to guess that in a room of this size, there are some of you here who are at least toying with physical sexual immorality, by which I mean sexual engagement with anyone to whom you are not married. Whatever rationalizations you are whispering to yourself, listen to the word of God when he says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You are on a path that leads to death, Christian. Do not walk in the darkness. Come to the light. Confess your sins. Do whatever is necessary this day to cut that sin off. Get godly counsel. Flee the wrath to come. The same must be said to those of you who are enmeshed in pornography. Engagement with that sort of thing is a pursuit of damnable worldliness. It will destroy you if you don't cut it off. So if you're stuck in that cycle, 
come to the light today. Men, if this is a struggle for you, send an email today to Pastor Craig saying, I need to join Real Recovery. Do that today. Ladies, if this is a problem for you, reach out today to the wife of an elder. Get help in dealing with this problem. You cannot linger with the lusts of the flesh. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, let's see, I'm not engaged in sexual immorality, not wrestling with porn, I guess I'm in the clear. Don't move too quickly past this category of the lust of the flesh. Consider whether there are forms of entertainment that you engage in because of the passing thrill that you know you will receive from the sexual content it contains. I'm asking, are there movies or shows you watch, not entirely, but in part, because of the momentary indulgence you'll receive from its images and scenes? Is there, a, is there a social media app that you use for good purposes, for fine purposes, and yet when images and videos you know you shouldn't be looking at find their way across your path, perhaps unbeknownst to anybody, are you lingering over them? You're not fleeing them. Now, I'm not telling you to, to get rid of your phone or to unsubscribe from Netflix or to delete Instagram. That would be easy to do. That would be easy to do. I'm asking you to do something far harder which is to be honest with yourself before the Lord about ways in which your heart is still leaning towards the lusts of the flesh, ways that the lusts of the flesh may have a subtle grip on your heart. You need to confess it, and you need to take practical steps to root it out. And I'm lingering on sexual sin because it is rampant in our culture. And it would be easy, especially in a sermon like this, to walk away feeling good about yourself and saying, well, at least I'm not like those people out there celebrating insane perversity. At least I'm not like that. It's easy to point your finger at the immorality of the world and fail to recognize that our standard is not doing slightly better than them. You are to walk in the light. You are not to love the world. You are to flee that which brings the holy wrath of God. Maybe for you it's not the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eyes that John warns about. This is a covetous longing for what pleases the eye, for shiny new material goods that promise to delight you. So your credit card statements and your Amazon browsing history will be helpful to you in assessing whether this is something you're struggling with. It may be helpful for you to ask, when you are bored, when you are anxious, what do you read or watch or look at? Do you self-medicate by daydreaming about your next purchase? or by making the next purchase. Again, um, it's not wrong to spend downtime looking at real estate listings or looking at Amazon Prime Day sales that are coming up. But if you find yourself leaning on those things regularly, craving nice-looking stuff that isn't yours, you are in danger of coddling the lust of the eyes. Put that away. Put that away. The Bible also warns about the pride of life. This is the arrogance that comes from status. Status because of what you achieved or what you have. And this too is worldliness. This might be an area of danger for you. If you find yourself regularly looking down on others who haven't quite measured up to the high standard that you've achieved in your life, you've done so well, these other people or here's a test for worldly pride. Are you able to receive constructive feedback from others? 
without immediately rebutting them? Are you an easy person to correct? Or do people groan when they think about correcting you because they know all that it will entail? And if you're immediately dismissing my question, that's not a good sign. <laughs> if you think the pride of life could be a remaining vestige of worldliness in your life, here's a brutal way to check. Ask a friend. Ask a spouse. Ask your parent. Ask your child. And then actually listen. And don't provide a list of reasons why they're wrong. If that's an area for you, you got to go after that. you got to go after that. Pride is just as damnable a sin as the lust of the flesh. Now, you will not repent perfectly. Brothers and sisters, you will not repent perfectly. You will not kill your sin with flawless zeal. And so it is such good news, is it not, that we have an advocate with the Father, not righteous Abraham, but Jesus Christ the righteous he mercifully intercedes for you with the same energy with which he plucked you out of the pit. He has pulled you from the fires of Sodom. So let's not turn back from his rescue. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we need your grace. We need the intercession of your son, the grace that comes to us in our time of need if we are to continue on the path that you've set before us. So please give it. Please give it to me. I need it. Please give it to my brothers and sisters here and give grace to those who presently think what I'm saying is foolishness. Awaken them, O oh God. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.